recording. I did want to leave uh, or start off uh, where we, where I left off with kind of not really doing a great job explaining Ezekiel 18. I know Karen's not here and she's the one that asked the question, but if, if you could go to Ezekiel 18, she asked a question in terms of rewards, which goes back to what we were talking about with the Bema Seat Judgment. The Bema Seat Judgment, by way of review, is the judgment that all believers in Christ during the church age will be judged. And it is abundantly clear from Scripture that this judgment has nothing to do whether or not someone is saved. It has everything to do with the deeds done in the body. It's a, a transdispensational truth. In other words, it's true in all parts of Scripture throughout history that man is responsible for what we do in our bodies. Now, as Scripture is given progressively or incrementally, we get further details that, okay, not everyone's going to be at the same judgment. A lot of that depends on your relationship to God. And so the judgment of the righteous uh, during the church age, we're judged at that Bema Seat judgment. I shared my views on rewards just to kind of briefly summarize. I view that um, God has created us in Christ Jesus for good works. So we are born again in him. God has a plan for each of us. And when we walk in those things that God has prepared for us, we receive rewards. If we don't do those things, well, we don't re receive rewards. And so there's a lot of differing views. And I, I understand that there's not a whole lot of clarity on some of these issues. And that's why there is some biblical arguments that contradict what I've, I'm saying. So I say that if you disagree, that's entirely fine. Uh, but based on the text, just in my own personal study, I see rewards being, being rewarded on what we have done that God has prepared for us. And I think those things done, those rewards are permanent, so to speak. So if you do those things, they are rewardable. The things that you, so the, the question of loss of rewards, I think it's the loss of what could have been by you not living up to, or us, I, I definitely need to include myself, us not living up to what God has called us to will re result in loss of rewards. And so a question from Ezekiel 18, verse 24, at a glance seems to contradict that. Just to read verse 24, and then I'll go back through with the context. It says, But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them he shall die." So this brings up the question of sin unto death. Is everyone familiar with sin unto death? Anyone want to take a stab at explaining it? Maybe summarizing it. You don't have to <laughs> give a full, elaborate explanation. I think maybe uh, sin, sin unto death would be uh, um, the sin nature. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, stemming from the Garden of Eden, you know, uh, we're all going to die because of our sin nature. Sure. And so you have, uh, you're going to just 
you may be justified by your faith and sealed by the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and living by the sin nature and even doing more than yeah. you should, you'll lose your life. Right. Ultimately still be saved. So even believers then can suffer sin unto death, right? And I absolutely believe that. And I think that there's many passages uh, that speak of that. In fact, I think the whole argument of the book of James kind of centers on that. I know death is taken a couple different ways, even amongst people in our community. But I think when he talks about in James chapter 1, sin when it is full grown brings forth death. I think he's, he's saying that if that path continues, what's the inevitable result? And you brought it up. That all stems back from the garden, right? But even if a believer continues down that path, what what does it bring? Well, ultimately, it may bring death. And then he talks about saving a brother who has wandered from death. Um, and so that's that's how I take that. But the question is, a believer that suffers the sin unto death, do they get any rewards? And based on this, verse 24, it namely all the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered does that nullify my view in particular that all the good works that he did is not remembered by god or or not credited what do you think i think that the believer who lives a life of sin or whatever uh that he will not reign with christ during the millennial kingdom Mm -hmm. where the believers uh that you know have been the light in the dark world and mm-hmm. uh, been set apart and do sanctification, live sure. the holy life, will reign with Christ. <clears throat> right. Where the other ones lose that opportunity to reign with him, but they still take part in the sure. kingdom. Right. And I would agree with that. And I think to some extent, so, so the question then is what if someone is living for the Lord and they're, they're doing well early in life, but as sadly is all too often, what if they don't end well? And what if they don't end well in a very big way? Do they, is all of that nullified? Now, based on this, at a glance, you might come to that conclusion. But I think if we look at it in context, it's not necessarily talking about the righteousness not being remembered in the sense of rewards. I think it's righteousness in the sense of sin unto death. So to start up at 19... It says, yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So, to summarize, he's basically saying we are judged on our own actions. And the results of that judgment are sin or, or death or life, right? 21. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Now, again, the focus here is not on rewards, but on life or death. Verse 23, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Now our verse, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? Shall he live? 
All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. So the issue I would submit is life or death, right? So if someone is living in sin, what's the result? Death. So even if a believer who does righteously and lives righteously, if they turn from it, all he's saying is that in the same way that I don't look at the sins of the man that turned from his sin is now living righteously. It's not the same for the one who is righteous and turns to sin. They will die. That's essentially what he's saying. So I don't think he's talking about rewards in the same sense that we're talking about. Um, so th hopefully that clarifies it a bit. Does that make a little more sense better than my previous explanation? I think in the garden when Satan tricked uh, Eve, in uh, Genesis 3 and says uh, now you will surely die mm -hmm. that kind of catapults us back over to Romans 6.23 where it says that the wages of sin sure. is death right. here's, your, here's your paycheck you right. know, you're, you're going to die exactly you know, hands down um, whether you are righteous or not Right. we all get to, we all get to die we're all going to Yep, exactly. Except those who get raptured, right? <laughs> but yes. All right, so I wanted to touch on that. Now I want to do a little bit of review just because I don't know how familiar you guys are with the judgment I covered last time with the Jewish kingdom entrance. In fact, I would say this is probably the most minority position that we probably hold because even those within our general camp don't see those passages the way that I explain them and, and to my understanding Dave would agree with. And what I'm talking about are those parables that are taught at the back end of Jesus's Olivet Discourse. So one of his last public teaching engagements, he's answering those questions from the disciples, when will these things be, that is the destruction of the temple, and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus goes on a extensive treatment, essentially, of the day of the Lord, the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. And then after that, a parable, I explained last time, a parable is a compound word in Greek that basically means to throw alongside. So it's an illustration. It's, a, it's taking a, a true-to-life story and using it to illustrate that something that has been taught. And so Jesus did that. And what he was teaching, well, first of all, I'll ask the question as you kind of turn to Matthew 25, who was he teaching or who is he talking to? Who was the audience of Jesus's words? There was no church yet. There was no church. So it's pre-Pentecost, right? Was he talking to the Pharisees? They might have been present. If we look at 24.1 says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him his, the buildings of the temple. Now he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, sometimes you have to be careful, because when it says disciples, that doesn't always mean the twelve, right? Sometimes it might be the seventy that kind of were a part of the somewhat medium group and then sometimes it's hundreds or thousands that have followed him now my thinking is that if someone heard a man teaching and they they 
especially if they heard that it was Jesus. There probably was some, some of those who gathered along the way, but the disciples, and they're speaking of the tribulation. Now, what is the tribulation's purpose? What is the purpose of the 70th week of Daniel? For the wrath of God to be poured out on the wicked. Okay, so that's, that's part one. I do see two kind of key purposes of the tribulation. That is one, I would agree, to pour out God's wrath on the book of Revelation calls them earth dwellers, but uh, the wicked. What's the, maybe the one that I would probably put before that? If I'm thinking right, I'm in the right spot. Mm-hmm. Chance. Yeah, I think that's. I think that could fall into. Okay, maybe there's three purposes, three branches to the purpose. Because you're right, right? For some, that is kind of the last chance. There are those that get saved during that time. But what's probably the main reason for the 70th week of Daniel? Think Daniel nine. I think to, to, to bring the Israelites back into the right relationship. Exactly. So why is it called the 70th week of Daniel? Because of Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, right? And at the beginning, what does he say? Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. And so I think that the main focus of the the 77s, especially the 70th, is Israel. And so I think Jesus, talking about the tribulation, has Israel in his thoughts especially because those questions were hinged on the temple, right? And the destruction of the temple. And so just to summarize what we covered last time, when he talks about those parables in 25, um, there's a series of them, the 10 virgins, the servants, and the talents. I take those as all talking about Israel and the type of response that Israel will have, but you could argue has had throughout history to the Messiah, but I think the context of the tribulation is on his mind. So in other words, during that 70th week, what type of person are you going to be? The, the master who goes away, are you going to be the servant that doesn't do what you're supposed to do? Are you going to be one of the five foolish virgins that doesn't prepare herself for the return of the bridegroom? And so those are the, uh, the basis of judgment. And we summarize that it's not a works-based preparation. Ultimately, how, how do you prepare to, for the return of Christ? Be a believer, right? That's the number one way. And so <clears throat> those who are not believers, they will be the ones that experience what these passages talk about as cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I do think it's important. I, I mentioned, and I would still emphasize this, we need to be gracious because even those in our camp disagree with this interpretation. They interpret those passages as talking about us, church-age believers. And, and then the consequences are rewards or loss of rewards. And so outer darkness is an experience of a believer to, in their estimation. And I just contextually don't see that uh, in it. Partly because, and I'm thankful for our upcoming study in Matthew, hopefully this isn't too controversial, but I do not see the church in Matthew at all. No. At all. Arguably, you can maybe make an argument in 28, uh, 18 through 20 with the Great Commission. Um, 
But besides that, I think even church, when it's translated church, the Greek word is ekklesia, which means assembly. And the church wasn't yet uh, in formation. And so we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that in our Matthew series. But any other questions on the Jewish kingdom entrance? And so that's ultimately the question is, will those Jews during the tribulation, will they enter or will they be cast into outer darkness? How do they enter? By being prepared, by being a wise servant, a wise virgin, by doing what they're supposed to do, namely believing in the Messiah. So the, the Jewish entrance is going to be um, basically just believing and preparing according to uh, Matthew 25. Right. I see. Yep. So those those Jews that survive to the end of the tribulation, how will they enter? If they're a believer, right? And if they're not a believer, Christ will say, I never knew you, which, by the way, sounds familiar, right? Have you heard that in Matthew 7? Well, I think a lot of the context there in Jesus's first century ministry is very similar to the tribulation. Why is that? Because the kingdom is on the table, Right. And so I think that needs to be uh, something on the forefront of our thinking is context. Always, always context. And so this these two judgments are separate from the tribulation. These two are at the end of the tribulation. And they are depending, or, or excuse me, never mind. These two middle ones are um, at the end of the tribulation, and it, it's depending whether or not they will enter the kingdom. Hence this diagram on page 12. These are believer and unbeliever judgments, the Bema Seat and Great White Throne, and then Jewish entrance and Gentile entrance on the other side. We'll go through that once we finish all of the judgments. And so the, the Jewish side of things are taken care of. Will there be Gentiles that survive the tribulation? And sometimes I've struggled in the past with this thought, well, what about the Battle of Armageddon? If all the Gentiles are gathered around Israel to destroy them, and then God comes and destroys them, who is going to be left alive? Well, if you think about it, just practically speaking, would the elderly be fighting in those battles? Will babies be fighting in those battles? Toddlers, children? Probably not, right? Sick or infirm or you know, those types of people. Nonetheless, there will be Gentiles that survive to the end of the tribulation, and they will stand before Christ as he is about to inaugurate his kingdom that will last for a thousand years and then into eternity. And this is the sheep and goats judgment. Anyone familiar with the sheep and goats judgment before we jump in? Have you heard of it before? Familiar with it? Elaborate on it. Sure, absolutely. And so we'll look at the details of what this judgment is. But the reason I'm going through all these judgments is I think your average Christian kind of thinks of there's just one big judgment at the end. And at the end, we're going to stand before God and our good works are going to be on this scale and our bad works are on this scale. And if it outweighs, then God says, okay, I'll let you. Did you know that that's actually what the Muslims believe? You know the whole, uh, in movies and TV shows, the two angels on the shoulder? That's Islamic doctrine. They believe there are two angels on the shoulder of people, and they are taking account of all the good deeds and the bad deeds, so that when they stand before Allah, uh, they'll do that balancing act. And even then, Allah may not let them in, unless they... It, and I know there's some variation amongst 
I'm talking about the fundamentalists. Those who take the book of Quran seriously uh, would take this view. And uh, jihad and stuff like that is guaranteed entrance. That's why you see young men so willing and eager to do those uh, horrific acts against people. And so that's not our understanding of judgment. The, the Bible tells us that there are at least these four judgments, right? And so we will be judged at the Bema Seat. Gentiles that survive the tribulation will be judged at the sheep and goats. Jews that survive the tribulation will be judged at the end of the tribulation. And then all unbelievers of every age also get judged. Now, if they're unbelievers, what's the point of judging them? Because we all must give an account for the deeds done in the body, right? So do the, can those showing up at this judgment be saved? We'll talk more about this next time, but can those at the Bema Seat judgment be unsaved? No. Believer judgment, unbeliever judgment. And the great white throne judgment is judging believers based on their works. I'll save more of our discussion for when we cover that. But just so you kind of look at the, the distinguishing marks. I have a yeah. question. The... Tribulation saints, as they're killed, um, I, I guess their their souls are they're just going to go before the Lord, before the Bema Seat, because <laughs> they have been killed, but they have a new faith in Christ, and so they've been saved by their faith <laughs> in Christ. I would imagine, um, and then because uh, I guess. The Lord is going to uh, release, release the locusts and everything to, right. to torture all the wicked, mm -hmm. God tells us, and then they'll be <clears throat> annihilated through Armageddon all the way up to the to the cutoff where, where Christ puts a stop to Armageddon. Mm -hmm. um, but I was wondering what how that looks, you yeah. know, as uh, the millennial kingdom is set up. How what looks exactly? Just how you know uh, all the new the, the new believers. Sure. Well, I think all those who died and are of the righteous will be resurrected before the kingdom. And so I would also include the Old Testament saints, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all their sons that were righteous. They will be resurrected and they will enter into the joy of their inheritance. I think Daniel 12 talks about that because that's what the angel tells them, right? Well, they'll be caught up. They'll be caught up in the air uh, based off of First Thessalonians 4. I don't right? think so. I think only those who are in Christ. So that would be the oh. church. Oh, I see. And so that's what's beautiful about the church and why I think it's, it's a shame if we give in to replacement theology that sees the church as one long span. It really takes away from the uniqueness of who we are. We're the only people throughout history that are in Christ. We are the body of Christ. That wasn't true of Israel. Now they are, you can make the argument, so we're the bride of Christ, and I've heard the argument, and I like it. They, were the, they are the wife of Jehovah. So um, there's the same, similar imagery, and we'll talk more about that probably in Matthew, but the, they don't have the same relationship to God that we do. Similar, but not the same. Now why, why is there a difference? Why does God do it this way? Right, that's another major difference, right? I would submit to you, so there's some, I don't know if it's necessarily a controversy. Some summarize the great 
theme of scripture is the redemption of man. I think that is a, a great theme, but what's the ultimate theme of scripture? The glory of God, right? The doxological purpose of God. That's the focus of scripture. And that's why I think there's the chosen people that are a nation, Israel, but there's also the body of Christ. But then I've, I've also tossed around the idea, what about the tribulation saints? They're not in the church. I don't think they are baptized into Christ, so they're not in the body. So they seem to be their own separate group. And they all glorify, glorify God in different ways. And I think that's why, ultimately, that's my answer or explanation. It satisfies my curiosity as to why God does it this way. Ultimately, if that answer doesn't work, well, because he did. <laughs> but I think it... it magnifies his glory and it allows us because i guess this you could also talk about why create man at all because he created angels right Right. well man is able to glorify god in ways the angels never could and angels glorify god in ways we never could israel glorifies god in ways the church never could the church glorifies god in ways israel never could and yet all are giving glory it's all i think when it's all said and done there's going to be a uh a great multitude in heaven as we clearly see and we're going to be all different tribes and tongues and we're all glorifying the same creator as god designed it from the beginning and so does that kind of summarize the tribulation it's kind of it's its own special case just because of the nature of prophecy and whatnot yeah yeah since the tribulation is the 70th week of daniel i would include the martyrs that are killed during that time with the Old Testament saints of the first sure. 69 weeks of Daniel, which sure. is mostly Israel and uh, Jewish proselytes. Absolutely, and I think you'd have a strong argument because the 70th week, you don't get 70 without 69, right? So I think that's a, a very strong argument. And so if you did lump them in, and traditionally I have, but there's also some uniqueness to the, what they've experienced and the ways uh, they'll tell their story, so to speak, in eternity. And so there will be those that survive to the end of the tribulation. Those who died during the tribulation, I don't necessarily think they'll be there. I think those who were righteous will enter. Those who were unrighteous, they'll be resurrected at the great white throne. But for the sheep and goats judgment, look at Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. The main text for this judgment is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And... We'll kind of just work through this. Let me see. It's not too long. Well, yeah, we'll we'll just work through this. So first of all, we've been asking questions and then looking at the text for the answers. So the first question is, who is judging? Well, look at verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now, who is the Son of Man? It's... Uh, specifically, a, especially Matthew, really brings this out, a messianic title, and it's Jesus. So Jesus is the one judging. And I also think we can say it's not the Father, based on verse 34. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the f- foundation of the world. Now, I know I'm splitting hairs with that, but just emphasizing that Jesus is the one judging. 
this judgment. Now, who is judged? Well, verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So all nations, right? Who's being judged? All the nations. That traditionally means it excludes Israel. So it's the Gentiles. And so really throughout history, there's only three people groups. Did you know that? There's Jew and there's Gentile. And predominantly throughout history, that's been the case. But then you have the church. And the church is a new man, right? Comprised of both Jew and Gentile. They are the body of Christ. But otherwise, the two main categories are Jew or Gentile. And so the Gentile nations uh, at the end of the tribulation. So again, the tribulation is the context of this judgment. And it's the end of the tribulation. So when the Son of Man comes in his glory, when is that? At the end. And then he sits on the throne of his glory. When is that? At the end of the tribulation, in the beginning of the kingdom. And we'll look more at the, the when in a moment. Now, what is the basis of judgment? This is kind of the heart of this study, is what's the basis of all of these judgments? Well, look at verses 35 through 36, which gives us the reason for positive judgment. So those who, quote, pass the, the test are in verse 35 through 36. Jesus says, for I was hungry. So he says, or let's start in 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, what is he talking about? (laughs) Well, if you are wondering that, those at the judgment will ask that question, right? Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or or thirsty and give you drink? And then he he explains, I think we'll, yeah, we'll look at the explanation here. But I want to highlight what I just read that you might have missed. What is a really important word in verse 37? Those who pass this test, what is their description In 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? So at at a glance, it might seem like our works necessary to pass this test or this judgment. At a glance, that may be the case, but they are the righteous. So they do what they do because they are who they are. They are the righteous. How did they become righteous? Or to put it another way, how are they justified? Is that how we're, we are justified? No, that's not how we're justified sure. But maybe that's how they're uh, thinking they, they're justified. Well, I think that they did what they did because they are the righteous. So, how did they get to that point? How did they become positionally righteous? Through faith. Through faith, right? Romans 1 through uh, 12, uh, 11. <laughs> it sounds like Jesus is saying if a person has faith, there will be works. Sure, we kind of talked about that the other day, Um, which is another interesting question, right, in our community is, are works a guarantee for all believers? Some say, yes, absolutely, and if they're not there, maybe they never were saved. Some, the other opposite end is, no, absolutely not. And then there's some middle ground as far as, and I would, I'm sympathetic to, 
you know, anyone familiar with Charles Ryrie? Ryrie's a great scholar. He, he basically explained that a believer will show fruit, but some people may never see it. So who are we to say that someone who is not showing fruit in that instance is not saved? That would be putting works as the basis of their salvation. And I, I think it's just, again, that's why I've mentioned this before. That's why I hate Petri dish theology. In other words, hypothetical situations. So usually the hypothetical goes, someone believes in Jesus Christ and they never do anything. Is that possible? I don't even want to go down that road just because it's a hypothetical nonsense, right? Because we also have passages like, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion or finish it. So I do think that uh, God is at work in us, but I think we have to be very careful on judging on fruit because sometimes we don't know what God sees. We don't know the work that God has done in that person's life. And, and honestly, what happens when you become a believer? What are you? An infant, right? Spiritually. And sometimes infants don't grow up. That's sadly true, right? And I think that can be true for believers. And so the righteous uh, are those who are the sheep, and they are told to go to my right and enter into the kingdom. Now, the explanation is in verse 37. They say, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When were you thirsty and we gave you a drink? Verse 38, uh, when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, who is Christ's brethren in this context? Israel. Israel, right? There is no church. So he says, my brethren, Israel, the least you did to these, because they're, they've already been judged, right? Now it's the Gentiles' turn. And so Jesus is saying, assuredly, inasmuch as you did to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Now that's basically the same thing that he says to Paul, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Was Paul persecuting Christ? I know that's kind of a trick question. Yes, right? But he was persecuting Christians who are the body of Christ. And so uh, he was persecuting Christ. And so I think in very much a similar way, he's saying, in as much as you did to them, you did to me. Now we get an explanation for negative judgment in 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Da, 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 da. Verse 45. Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So really, this is a, a firm rebuke against anti-Semitism, right? Where it should be. There's some principles that uh, we should uh, treat the Jews well. Now, granted, I think uh, brethren here would be the believing Jews trying to survive. Because, what's the, again, what's the context of this judgment? When would these people being judged have the opportunity to do or not do these things? During the tribulation, right? 
What were my brethren, Jesus' brethren, doing during the tribulation? Trying to survive, right? And so those who took care of them demonstrated that they understood that they were the righteous and they were taking care of them. Those who were unbelievers, they were probably party to the persecution of the Jews during the tribulation. So that's the explanation for both the positive and negative judgment. Any thoughts, comments, or questions? Um, could you elaborate a little bit on, at the end of the tribulation, when you have the Battle of Armageddon and everything, like, who survives all of that? And in what numbers? I mean, it, it, it sounds like there might be a lot of such uh, in this passage. And I guess I don't have a very good or very clear understanding in my head yeah. as to the wrap-up of the Day of the Lord. The sure, and it, it is a phenomenal question, and it's difficult partly because there's so many moving parts, right? Now, I believe that a lot of what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, you know, for example, when you see the abomination of desolation, what does he tell them to do? Flee. So in other words, those who are believers, he's saying, get out of there. When you see that and you understand what's going on, get out of there. And I, so I believe that there are going to be believing Jews at the midpoint of the tribulation or, or during, because the ministry of the 144 is during the first half. Many Jews come to faith and Gentiles. And I believe they are protected. I think Revelation 12 talks about it, gives the image of the dragon. So some take that as like the outside of time, that's when Satan fell. I don't see it that way. I see Revelation 12 explaining at that point, Satan is kicked out of heaven for good. Now you might think, well, I thought he already was kicked out when he fell. Well, what about Job? What about the accuser of the brethren? Where is he making those accusations? In heaven. So I think Satan and even demons have access to the throne of God. But at the, the Revelation 12, the midpoint of the tribulation, war breaks out in heaven and he is cast down. And then he inhabits the Antichrist and wages war against the Jews. And then there's a reference in Revelation 12 that he knows his time is short. And so that's that. But during the second half of the tribulation, I believe God is supernaturally protecting the believing remnant there are i think still going to be unbelieving jews that are around and how they survive well we're told right that there's a two-thirds get wiped out and one-third remains and so then you come to kind of this grand finale where armageddon ensues and all the nations gather around israel i'm oversimplifying but at that time when they're surrounded i think there's going to be kind of a uh, uh, many of the Jews will be believers. This kind of gets into our conversation in Romans 10, right? How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? So they will call upon Christ when they're surrounded by the nations. And what's the, the answer? Christ comes in and destroys her enemies and saves them, delivers them. That's that physical deliverance Dave and I were talking about. And so that's... I, I do think that there's also the, the rest of the third of Israel, whether they were all remnant before Armageddon or they became <laughs> believers then. Um, I think that there's references in Zechariah, for example, that kind of pose problems because it says, then they will look on me and whom they have pierced and they will weep as for a, a lost son. 
So it indicates that I think there will be a, a great coming to faith at the coming of Christ, but there will have already been as well. So I've so got that explains the remnant, which I yeah. Get. Here he's gathering nations, right? And okay, did these nations not take the mark of the beast, for example? Uh, because I wouldn't think all of them are the condemned in this story. Some of them are the righteous. And sure. How they are they a part of these nations? Dave, I saw your hand up. Yeah. You wanna, what were you gonna say? I was just gonna say in Revelation nineteen, nineteen, where. John is describing the Battle of Armageddon. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and, on, and against his army. So the armies are going to be arrayed, arrayed against Jerusalem. But there are thousands of civilians that are not going to be part of those armies and are not going to be slaughtered in the Battle of Armageddon because they're mm -hmm. still back home because they're civilians. Yeah. And they didn't take the mark? And they wouldn't, well... Those who, pa who passed didn't, but those who failed. So that's what I, I would say is the sheep and goats, it's not a basis of their works necessarily, although it gives that impression. I think that Jesus is demonstrating for them based on their what they did relative to the people of Israel, they suffer thusly or reap the benefits of, of doing well. Sorry I cut you off, but any other... No, I, I was just, I understood your question to be, if the Battle of Armageddon is so severe slaughter, how will anybody survive to be at one of these sheep and goat or ten virgin judgments? And what I was suggesting is the armies of these nations are going to be arrayed at the Battle of Armageddon. But there are thousands of civilians that are still going to be back home. Yeah. Okay. And so let's say that those civilians you speak of, I guess, make up these nations that are referred to in this uh, you know, story. I don't know if the parable is the right word, whatever, but um, maybe it is. But, um, but some of them, right, apparently treated Israel co correctly, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm saying those people that did, they didn't take the mark of the beast, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. Right. See, because, okay, it's, it's interesting to me that then it would seem like, I don't know how many, but multitudes get away with not taking the mark of the beast. Yeah, and I think that's, well, hmm. <laughs> I might have to chew on that. I think believers are going to help each other that's where sure you know if somebody asks you for your code give them your cloak also mm -hmm. somebody asks you to go a mile go two i think believers are going to be recognizing they have to help each other and i think believers are going to be forming unofficial co-ops underground <laughs> growing their own food and sharing it and um, yeah. i think there's going to be a uh, a great expression of brotherhood yeah. among the believers during that time, helping each other out because they won't be able to partake in the normal social commerce yeah. of buying and selling. Okay. I, I want to close with just... That's, a, that's presumption. <laughs> and that it is hard. And that's why I said, I, conventionally, I thought, well, I thought all, all of them were wiped out at Armageddon. Where are these people coming from? And that's what Dave said is, is what I would say as well is just apparently not all of them were there and they were gathered 
Now, the other thing to consider, and, and you kind of touched on this, and I would agree with kind of what you, you're back and forth. I'm not sure if this is a parable. It, I think it has some parabolic elements. Mm-hmm. But I do think he says what he says in this passage based on this previous teaching of the tribulation. So I think if we take that into our consideration, Jesus is essentially explaining, okay, the Jews will face judgment and enter or not enter. Gentiles also will face judgment and enter or not enter. Mm -hmm. And so I think that would be kind of the main thrust, whereas I think that would be another explanation I would give as to how this isn't a works-based judgment. I believe that the believing Gentiles will enter ultimately. If I summarize, believing Gentiles enter, unbelieving Gentiles don't. Um, would probably be the, the broad summary. Now, um, the Armageddon is global, isn't it? Uh, no, it's in Israel. It's just based on Israel. Now, I have my own thoughts, and I'm still working through this, but I do think there's some relationship to the Gog Magog I, I have, where I'm at now, I'm willing to change. There's still some things that are, the clay is wet, I'll say. There seems to be two phases to the Gog-Magog battle is what it's traditionally called. I'm wondering if it's kind of more of a war. And we see an initial outbreak of the war somewhere in the first half of the tribulation. And then there's a lot of similarities with Gog and Magog with Armageddon that I've wondered if that's not kind of the end of Gog Magog. But but that's centered on Israel. Because it's a gigantic war. Right. Uh, Armageddon's going to be huge. There's going to be, the word God says, that they're going to be der- uh, uh, burying the dead for seven months. Yep. You know, it's going to be a lot of dead people. Right. And then uh, in the Old Testament tells us the prophecies of the tribulation of, mm-hmm. uh, that there's going to be very difficult times. Uh, the, the sun will be darkened. Yep. There'll be daytime but nighttime you know so i was just considering that maybe it's just going to be global and that's what i thought i think certain characteristics would be global but i think the the actual fighting will be centered on israel because and and this makes sense of everything if satan destroys israel he wins right that's why there's armageddon that's why the nations gather because if they destroy israel he destroys god and the temple that's being built right now in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. where Satan is supposed to uh, take reign, that's, that, that temple is almost completed, right? They, they haven't even begun building, is my understanding, but all the plans are there. Once they get the go-ahead, I don't think it'll take long. But they, they're working on the sacrifices. They have, last I heard, three candidates for the red heifer. Now, Old Testament prophecy, or not prophecy, but a law was that the blood of a red heifer was what was required to cleanse the temple artifacts and instruments and part of it is i don't know how i don't know if god's this is going to sound weird god's standard is the same as the rabbinic standards so they say if there's you know three white hairs it's disqualified i don't know if that's necessary because god didn't say that right he just said a red heifer uh, without any blemishes so the rabbis say oh three hairs that's got to be a blemish is that a blemish in god's eyes i don't know but nonetheless that that's their thinking and their thinking is how do we get this back up and running 
And I think that during the tribulation, they'll have the Antichrist's favor in getting that built in short order. Now, the three hairs that you're referring to, are, is that mentioned in the oracles of God? No. That's what I'm saying. Is That's, I think, rabbinic understanding of what constitutes a blemish. I'm not convinced that that's what God says. So maybe they've had a qualified candidate this entire time, but their obstinance, uh, because we'll talk about this in Matthew, but the rabbinic theology, they built fences around the law, and they added and subtracted stuff to try to make themselves look better. So I'll explain more of that later. But Yeah, well, and that's the other major problem is right now there's Dome of the Rock. And that's a lot, it's posed a lot of issues for students of prophecy is how in the world can a temple be built where the Dome of the Rock is? So some say, well, where the dome is isn't actually the temple. Some have other alternatives. Um, regardless, I think because Satan will be working with the Antichrist during the first half, somehow it's going to come about that by the midpoint, there's a functioning temple that the Antichrist is able to offer the abomination, or I think ultimately himself. He's going to set himself up as God, um, which is probably why the Muslims would agree to it, right? If they believed he was God and he says, hey, I'm going to build this temple, but it's you know going to be for me, you know, that's kind of getting more into speculation. When do you hope to begin your Matthew study? Uh, December. So we're kind of, I was long-winded the last couple weeks, so we might be a week behind. But the idea is I would like to, in a perfect scenario, do the birth narrative on Christmas. My, there would just be something satisfying or unsatisfying to not do that. But um, not too much pressure. But that's the idea is we're rounding things off. We're starting chapter 16. Dave's going to finish some of what I didn't cover and then get into 16. And then depending on how long it takes to get through all those names.